Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and we are here this afternoon with a scholar by the name of Alan Wang. The surprising thing about this scholar who just won a state award, New York State Archives Award, for his paper is that he's 16 years old. But his research is incredible. So welcome, Alan. Thank you, Mrs. Hale Spencer. <laughs> nice to be here today. So I'd like to just start by telling our listeners the title of your paper. And this is it. Serendipity, colon, an Iroquois Indian, an American anthropologist, and communism. If that doesn't grab you, I don't know what will. So let's start with the first word. And Alan has a whole chapter on serendipity. Tell us, tell us why you chose serendipity for the first word of your title. So when I was in the process of writing my paper, I actually contacted the author of a major biography for a person in my paper, and he recommended that I read this book that focused on serendipity because I like to because he noticed that in my thesis I was talking about chance. Now serendipity is actually it is similar to chance, but it's actually a lot more complex than that. And I definitely learned that when I was reading my book. It's um it's really nuanced and it's a lot. Well, what you say in your paper is there's a Persian tale, The Three Princes of Serendip, and tell us about their travels. I, they, I think the way the story goes, the ancient story, is that their king, their father loved them, but he didn't want them just to have a court education. He wanted them to go out in the world and see things. Mm-hmm. And so these three brothers, these three princes of Serendip, we're out there, and the one thing that kind of sticks in my mind was, like, they saw a camel and could tell you all kinds of things about it mm-hmm. because of what they noticed. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just chance, as you write in your paper. It was sagacity. It was mm-hmm. knowledge. It was chance influenced by multiple other factors, such as the environment or the insightfulness or an ability of people to follow through on said factors of chance. Yeah. And it, it struck me when I got to the very end of your paper and you had a note, you know, an author's note, which was charming, that you're finding this topic was sort of serendipity. Mm-hmm. Tell us, um, you started out you were going to research, was it the Coxsackie virus? Yeah, when I originally embarked on this competition, I was going to research the the Coxsackie virus, named after a local town here in New York, and um, based on the Wadsworth Center that actually, I think, helped discover it, and I was going to write about the history of that through local records because um, my father's a biologist and I've been interested in biology, but then when my father was talking to his colleague about me thinking about entering this competition he thought about he thought about the chance encounter between lewis henry morgan and elias parker uh a seneca indian and i had no i had no idea who these people were so i went home i quickly hopped on wikipedia i looked them up (laughs) and i was like okay this is pretty interesting i thought their chance encounter was really pretty cool but then as i scroll to the bottom of the page i see a section on Karl marx i'm like what 
So I kept reading, did some more research, and I, was, and I decided, okay, this is definitely my new topic. This is really, inter- this is really interesting. So yes, me finding this topic was actually, I would say, a case of serendipity in itself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then tell us about their encounter, the encounter between Morgan and Parker, because I would just wish I could have been in that bookstore. Just tell us like who they were and how that happened. So Lewis Henry Morgan was an aspiring young man as he was originally going to be a lawyer. He graduated from Union College and he he was attempting to start up a law firm, but at the time he wasn't able to do so. There was a lot of competition. So in, so instead, he and a couple of his friends from from Union College started a fraternity club called the the Gordian Knot that eventually got renamed into the Grand Order of the Iroquois and what they did was they impersonated Iroquois Indians and in a way it was a way to escape the constraints of a new society because during the time frame around the mid 1800s early 1800s the industrial revolution was really kicking up so you don't have any more of that adventurous sense of you could say the Lewis and Clark expedition the wild everything's just cities factories pollution it's a kind of a different landscape than what you think of of old America so as they so as they embarked into this club they were really interested in Native Americans, and eventually, four years uh, at around 1844, Lewis Henry Morgan would, wanted to find more about Native Americans for his club, this fraternity club. And at the time, Elias Parker also happened to be there in Albany, New York, because he was part of a specific tribe of Seneca Indians, the Tonawanda Band. And they were currently in Albany, New York to fight a court case because an, a land company called the Ogden Land Company were attempting to take their land away and sell it to make a profit. And they just happened to chance upon a bookstore for serendipity, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, well, just before we get what happened next, i just like to back up a little because... There were all kinds of organizations like that. In our area, we had the Redmen's Association, where as the Native American way of life that had been superseded by the Europeans was disappearing, the Europeans suddenly became very interested in Mm -hmm. trying to emulate it. That's just such a peculiar wrinkle. Mm -hmm. Um, But what Morgan did, which I learned from your paper... Um, was very different than what most of the young men who were joining these fraternal organizations were doing. You know, they were putting on what they thought were Native costumes Mm -hmm. and taking what they thought were Native names Mm -hmm. and kind of trying to (laughs) reenact the rituals that no longer, you know, they'd been cut off from their roots. Mm -hmm. But tell us instead what Morgan ended up doing. So instead of participating in those trivial activities like his other club members, he took an actual legitimate interest in the American Indians, and he took that extra step to really do an ethnographical study on them, to study their ancient artifacts, their ancient treaties. But before meeting Ellie Parker, he didn't really have a method to do that. So in a sense, he had an interest in them. He wanted to learn more about them, but he really wasn't able to do so until he met Ali S. Parker. And... Parker then became his conduit to this culture. Mm -hmm. And our readers might be familiar a little with Parker because I recently wrote an editorial. I don't know if you know there's um, 
right now on display in the New York State Museum. It's called the Corn Planter's Hatchet, but it's both a peace pipe and a hatchet, which is kind of interesting. George Washington gave it to the Seneca tribe, Mm -hmm. and Parker was instrumental in... um, securing it from the original owner to donate it to the museum. And um, I read a biography that his grandnephew had written about him when the grandnephew was the state archaeologist. And again, it's the same kind of thing you capture in your paper here, this transition in society from um, people that were actually living the Native American life to people that were trying to preserve it. Mm -hmm. And... So tell us what Morgan did once he befriended and really helped Parker. The, his fraternal organization paid for his schooling. Mm-hmm. and um, But tell us a little about the kind of research that he ended up doing. So after his initial meeting in the Albany Bookstore in 1844, the first thing Morgan did at the time was he immediately <clears throat> met up with L.E.S. Parker, and, and he took him back to me. Parker's grandfather, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Johnson, the, he was the grand sachem, sachem, not too sure, sorry, not too sure. About sachem. The, sachem, sorry. <laughs> there you go. Uh-huh. Of the, he was uh, the, the, the chief, the, the chief, yeah, mm-hmm. of the entire Six Nations. And so the first thing he did was he asked him a lot of questions. Who else to get better knowledge from than the entire leader? And with Parker as a translator, that was how he made his initial contact. And soon after that, through Parker and his connection, he was able to attend a lot of Iroquois rituals, um, specifically the Seneca, the Seneca band, because that's where um, uh, Parker was from. And he took a lot of notes upon their, their rituals, their culture. He noticed how they had long houses and how they were more matriarchal society compared to the Europeans, and it was really different and intriguing to him, so he took down a lot of notes. Um, I wrote in my paper that he wrote to a fellow ethnologist who was also interested in the time, Schoolcraft, that it would require a lot more room to fill up all these letters of notes that he could have observed. And so he, he first he wrote an essay, I think, in around 1845, and then soon, later, in 1851, in his first in his first uh, well-known work by Lewis Henry Morgan. It was called The League of the Iroquois, and that's where he really compiled all the ethnological findings he had compiled in the last seven years, all into one book, and it was the first scientific, in-depth study on the Iroquois Americans without, with the Iroquois Indians, without any any sort of bias or or romanticism. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the name of one of Gilderland's most famous names of sons, Henry Rao Schoolcraft, and you have an excerpt from their letter exchange. Um, he he grew up in a house on Willow Street in Gilderland. Did you know that? I, it's, I, I interviewed the people that have restored it now, but mm-hmm. um, he too was doing a lot of research like that mm-hmm. at that time. And the poem, you know, Hiawatha by Longfellow was based on his research, but that, again, was that sort of romanticized view that kind of put together various stories from Native American traditions that wasn't an accurate accounting of what what was real. Mm. But, so, just to keep following the path of your research, but maybe we'll take a little side trip, actually. So you, you know, did this quick look on Wikipedia that intrigued you and then you dove into using first 
original documents. Tell us just a little about your research process and, and what that was like to find those documents. I know in one place in your, I think in your author's note at the end, you kind of said, by the way, your fun fact, both Charles Darwin and Morgan had really atrocious handwriting. Mm-hmm. So tell us how you found these records and what it was like to be working with them. <clears throat> so while I was reading the biography by uh, um, Moses, um, I, I kept looking through the bibliography to see where is he getting all this information from because this book is obviously a lot longer than the Wikipedia article that I read. <laughs> and so... I noticed that a lot of them were actually from the University of Rochester. And then upon further research, that's actually where Lewis Henry Morgan willed most of his life's work after his death, and he helped found the University of Rochester. So I, so I thought, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to get first uh, primary source documents for this paper, that's definitely my number one place to go. So I took the four-hour drive up with, with my father, of course, and we did research. And once we went to the archives, it, I, it was honestly really cool re-seeing all these quotes from within the book and then pulling out the documents from within a folder behind a locked room and seeing just the really thin paper the atrocious handwriting but then eventually i could make out okay i see this line and then i look over to my book oh and this line's over here so i could i could see that this is the exact lines of work that moses had actually seen um almost two decades ago when he wrote the book so yeah. I thought that was really, really interesting. That is. That's fascinating. Did they make you wear white gloves? Did you have to know? No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I've been in libraries where you do that. Uh-huh. So um, just another side trip before we get back on the main track. You mentioned you know, your father driving you to Rochester, and he drove you here. And in your end notes, you talk about, and it just touched me as a mother, You know how important your father was to discuss ideas with and... I think you said when you started here, he's a biologist. Mm-hmm. Is that t- just tell me a little about your father's role or your parents' role in in supporting you in this research because that's fascinating. So my father, because he was the one who originally suggested this topic to me, any any time I just came across anything interesting, I bounced it off of him. I bounced it off of him, and um, we just talk about. And I guess thought experiments because I did have to do some critical thinking for this essay. I tried to extrapolate th- uh, things I read in the biography, and that's how I actually made the connection while while talking with my father in the in, in the introduction of my paper. I talk about how because of the rise of the industrial revolution and right. the and the and the more constricted lifestyle. I read about it briefly in the in Moses's biography, but I didn't really make the connection. I didn't think it was that important of a detail until I just discussed it with my father and I thought, "Oh wow, this is actually something that really important for my paper to really set the scene for the rest of my entire paper and I wouldn't have gone without my father just helping me connect ideas, bounce off ideas and just discussing." Yeah, that's great. So, now we're going to take the leap that they got you from this serendipitous meeting in the bookstore and aligned this Seneca leader. He became a leader um, under Ulysses S. Grant in the Civil War and also as a diplomat for his tribe, but aligned him with Morgan, who is now called the father of American anthropology. But how do we make the leap to Karl Marx. Tell, tell, tell us about that. So after the League of the Iroquois, 
after that was published in um, 1851, um, Lewis Henry Morgan continued doing stu- ethnographical studies, and event- so and eventually he realized that there was kind of a pattern between many different native peoples, even across the United States, and then soon later the world, that they had similar social structures that seemed to be what he called primitive communism, that in a sense there wasn't a uh, there wasn't a concept of private property that we see in uh, in the first um, free market capitalism. So it was a really different system, and he wanted to prove that, okay, um, if all these different native peoples all have similar, extremely similar social structures, despite being separated by hundreds, even thousands of miles, then they must all come from one common ancestor. So after he published this book called The Systems of Consanguinity and Affinity, um, he actually that got published by the Smithsonian Institute, and after that, he finally wrote his magnum opus um, called Ancient Society, which tied that theory from systems that a lot of native peoples are actually interrelated, and he related that to the concept of private property and how property evolved at the same time as evolved at the same time as native peoples, and so after he wrote this book. And Karl Marx in 1881 somehow took a hold of it, and it because and it really helped him, Karl Marx as a as a as his theory in the Communist Manifesto. He uh, introduced some really new groundbreaking ideas, but he didn't really have um, a, a, a basis for like a real life. Um, basis of proof that it worked what he was saying he was spouting all these new ideals but he didn't really he didn't he couldn't really see an example i guess in um in history so so um he was able to use the work that lewis henry morgan wrote in ancient society which was a result of league of the iroquois it was a it was a it was a multi-step process and he was able to substantiate that work and put it put it into his own uh notes years later so it was completely another serendipitous encounter yeah. So, but it was Marx previously had had the idea that you had to have capitalism to revolt against in order to come up with this communist society. But all according to the research done by Alan Wang in this paper. And was this your own idea, or has this been written about before? This idea that it was reading this book by Morgan that introduced a way you could end up with communism without having gone through the capitalism and the revolution against that. Mm-hmm. Is that is that original thinking on your part? Uh, I, I, I don't think I'd say so. I did reference a lot of research articles and writing talking about Lewis Henry Morgan's influence on Marx and eventually yeah, the Soviet right? Union. So I... I I guess it's not original in that thought. I did use it. I hadn't seen it before, so uh-huh. I was impressed. Um, that was quite a leap, and quite an interesting mm-hmm. leap, I thought. So now that you've finished this work, what like where are your thoughts going next? I mean, are you taking on another research project or? <laughs> Unfortunately, not at the moment. I thought it was really fun, the project, worthwhile while doing so. You know, a lot of times when I was, especially in the early stages, I would think to myself, you know, why am I doing this? This is a lot of work. But as it got later, uh, as I progressed throughout the project and read more things, it thought to be more interesting in writing. I thought it was fun. But in the end, it was a lot of hours of work. I'd say probably um, 
72, maybe three days, so 72 hours, maybe or even more of just writing about it and thinking about it. So it was a lot of effort. It was a six-month process. So I don't know, now that I'm a junior in high school, I don't know if I'll be able to undertake another project like that. But if I... Uh, if I had more time, I'd definitely be willing to. <laughs> so what does your future look like? What what kinds of things do you like studying? Where's your interest? Um, in terms of uh, STEM, more related fields, I, I'm... And for the um, uninitiated, that's science, technology, engineering, and math. math. Okay. <laughs> And I am interested in biology so far for oh, all the science you're things, like, just, your just like my father's footsteps. Yeah, huh. at the same time, you know, even I wouldn't have been able to do this pro- this entire historical essay project if I wasn't interested in history. So I do. I also enjoy history a lot. You know, a lot of my friends they don't enjoy history, but I do. I think it's fun recounting all these past stories and making connections. Um, and I also enjoy English class a lot. It is like... Well, you write very well. How did you learn to write? I think it was just... I think reading is really uh, underplayed. And uh, it's not emphasized enough, especially as you get to high school. I talked to a lot of my friends, and they don't really read. But I like to read. And, what kind of things do you like to read? Um, I've read recently. I've been trying to read more 20th century classics. Um, I read, I read 1984, Animal Farm. Other, what a, ta- what a good like time to be reading that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. So I think reading is, well, not I think, it is. <laughs> most, I think most people agree that reading is um, really important for writing. You learn a lot of new um, structures, way to phrase ideas, new uh, new words to use. And, and also, it's also about just experimenting. Um, you can't improve your writing unless you keep trying to write. And... Having an, definitely having an interest in it helps as well. I think writing is fun, sitting there, struggling, then overcoming, then coming out with a, a new paragraph that is really satisfying, I have to say. Yeah, well, I have to tell our listeners, when Alan came in, I complimented him on his writing, and he said, well, I reread it you know, before this podcast, and I saw a lot of things I would have improved, and I thought, that's the mark of a good writer, always <laughs> reworking, you. always uh-huh. improving. So if your life unfolds, and none of our lives do, but let's just say your life unfolds just the way you picture it now, at age 16, what, like, who will you be? What will you be doing uh, it's honestly kind of hard to say. It's been mm-hmm. I've been bouncing between a lot of different things. I thought about it actually. Um, uh, it was like a brief, I guess you call it a phase. Like last year, I thought it'd be really cool to be a writer in the New York Times or like the Washington Post, uh, a really prestigious establishment. I just thought the environment would be really cool or really fun. I don't know. Just and do you in, read the Post and the Times? I do read it yeah. occasionally. I think they're really well written and they're really important for us. And but then I've also thought about being. Something biology related. Not, I'd. I was interested in biomedical, applicate uh, biomedical applications of biology, or maybe even biochemistry. Just as long as it has to do with biology, I guess. But maybe not uh, like a professor as my uh, like my dad, like my father is. And he's a professor at the University of Albany. Yes, is that right? Uh, so your future's wide open. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> but I hope part of it includes writing. What what led you, other than the serendipitous encounter, but you were then looking for a topic for this competition, what what made you decide to step up? You were just a sophomore. What what made you think, oh, I want to do this? Um, 
there's always you know college on the back of your mind but i definitely i wouldn't say that's the primary motivation i just thought okay here's history uh a topic that i'm interested in i want to see what i can do with it and at the same time uh i noticed at the time my writing i think is okay but I think it could be better. So I, I did want to challenge myself a little bit and see what I could do if I combine these two things. And, you know, my first time writing a research paper, it could definitely be better. But it was a, definitely a new sort of discipline of writing. In the past, I've only written essays or the occasional creative writing. But this is a whole new different kind of style or genre. Yeah, I should just let our listeners know. I'm going to have to look and see 42 pages. And of that, how many footnotes? And the footnotes... Um, the references are fascinating because he doesn't just list a source, but he tells you a little bit about it and his experience with it, which gave you a kind of you were there quality, which I really liked in the writing. And you kept a very serious, but not so many academic authors are kind of pedantic. You didn't have that tone. You had a, a level on your same wavelength tone until at the very end is the only time I saw in your author's notes where it's perfectly appropriate you mm. use words like something felt cool yeah. or <laughs> fun fact uh-huh, or uh-huh. so you must be very aware of separate writing personas to do that uh-huh. um, mm. what like what kind of other writing do you do um, I write I usually like in school I usually mainly write um, Nonfiction or like essay argumentative writing that's all I've mainly been doing I think it's really uh, fun to find a rhetoric uh, unique rhetoric and um, combine it to really get your to really um, get your point across what you want to tell someone what is the best way to do it how can you appeal to someone through you know logos pathos or ethos which are different appeals ah you study classical Uh rhetoric (laughs) and I think it's really interesting um when you just um, sit there and I think, okay, these are the ideas I want to convey, but how am I going to do that? How am I going to link from from idea A to idea B, sounding smooth in the middle, using words that are appropriate for the situation that would really stick out to the reader and remember, okay, I'll keep this in mind for this topic. So I think that's really, really entertaining to do. Oh, Alan, that's great. On our time, you were worried we wouldn't be able to fill it up. It's gone already. Do you have any closing closing thoughts for us, Alan? Uh, yes, I'd just like to say that I think the ultimate enterprise is a really, well, I guess it's a kind of a juvenile term, but a really cool establishment. <laughs> because I walked in, I see these bundles of newspapers, I couldn't help but think, there's a lot more professional looking than our school newspaper that I'm actually a part of in my, I go to the high school, I'm part of the, oh, in the, the journal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you do on the journal? I, um, I'm the associate editor. Um, next, next year, I hope I can be, uh, rise up and take that step to be editor-in-chief but i helped for our first issue actually just came out recently and i helped lay out i helped edit uh, all of the articles and i thought it was i think it's really cool writing newspapers and writing a more journalistic style i think that's interesting as well so i should have mentioned that earlier i have written journalistically a couple times as well (laughs) and how do you see journalistically as different than say your research paper it's more casual, and you're definitely appealing more, I'd say. Well, obviously, it depends on the topic, but in general, the tone, I'd, I'd say, is more inf- informal, as in you're trying to really connect to this person, be right there with them, and really uh, allowing them to see why you think something is interesting. Or sometimes it's even just making a seemingly boring topic interesting. There's really a lot you can do with journalism. It's, I guess, the core message of it all is just to get the information out to people in a truthful but entertaining way for people to to be able to absorb. 
That's a perfect closing. We seek the truth and print it, and so do you. Thank you, Alan Wang. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mrs. Hill Spencer.